You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. All right, I think we're ready to start. Hey, everybody. Wow, what a day. Uh, We have finally reached the final session of the day of our weekend's program. I see so many of you have stuck with us. The turnout has just been fantastic. It is so awesome. Thank you so much for uh, your loyalty. And uh, it's just been so much fun. So here we are. Um, On behalf of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers and the City Lights Foundation and our partners at PM Press, I'd like to welcome you to session four of Dangerous Visions and New Worlds. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. This final session of the day is called Final Programs and New Fixes, a conversation with Michael Moorcock. It will feature Mike Stacks in conversation with him. As with the previous session, due to difficulties presented by time zone differences, we had to pre-record this event to accommodate everybody. So it was recorded on Friday, February the 11th of 2022. Uh, A few words about our participants. So those familiar with the sci-fi genre, Michael Moorcock needs very little introduction. He is considered one of the leading voices of the genres of science fiction and fantasy. He's also published a number of well-received literary novels, as well as comic thrillers, graphic novels, and nonfiction. He has worked as an editor and also as a successful musician. He is uh, best known for his novels about the character uh, Elric of Melnibune, a seminal influence on the field of fantasy since the 60s and 70s. As editor of the British science fiction magazine New Worlds, Mr. Moorcock fostered the development of science fiction's new wave in the UK and indirectly in the United States, leading to the advent of cyberpunk. His publication of uh, Bug Jack Barron by Norman Spitrad as a serial novel was notorious. Actually, in British Parliament, some British MPs condemned the Art Council for funding the magazine. So Mr. Moorcock is also a recording musician. He's contributed to bands like Hawkwind, Blue Oyster Cult, Uh, Spirits Burning, and his own project, Michael Moorcock and the Deep Fix. In uh, 2008, the Times named Mr. Moorcock in its list of the 50 greatest British writers. So his interviewer today is none other than Mike Stacks. Mike Stacks is a writer, editor, publisher, record producer, and musician. He is the founder and editor of the legendary Ugly Things magazine and frontman for the musical group The Loons. His work with Ugly Things has been instrumental in the preservation of late 20th century garage, psychedelic, punk, and alternative music. He is currently working as co-writer with Rick Brown on a feature film about the seminal 60s psychedelic rock group, The Misunderstood. So uh, in a moment, we will begin the broadcast. Hi, I'm Mike Sachs, and today I'm going to be talking to the great, prolific, British writer Michael Moorcock, a huge presence in the world of literature, specifically science fiction literature, since the 1960s. And as such, he's also one of the major figures documented in the book we're covering today. This one, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. 
So let's get started. Um, nice to be with you, Michael, or from a distance nice at least. Nice to be with you, yeah. Um, let's start off with, uh, at the beginning, um, how did you first discover science fiction? Um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, I, I, my father, who ran off as soon as the war was over, um, uh, left behind, actually, by far the best inheritance I could ever have had, which was a couple of Edgar Rice Burroughs books and a couple of other books, George Bernard Shaw and somebody else. So um, uh, that's how, I mean, I, I learned to read on, on the book that he got as a Sunday school prize, which is called Timothy Tatters. And it was, it was about the Irish Land League and how bad it was, because it was a Methodist, but something I don't know. Anyway, uh, but I read it through. And that was, I remember thinking, you know, I've got to read a long book. I want to be able to read a long book. This is before I went to school. So I read that, which was sort of trash. Then I read the Edgar Rice Burroughs. So that was really imprinted on me from about the age of four or five, whenever, you know, whenever it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, that, that was when I started reading, you know, as it were, fantastic fiction. And then I got a taste for pulp magazines, uh, for American pulp magazines, uh, yeah. which were super, you know, I still, I still love them. Um, but I, what happens usually, what happened in the old days with science fiction is that people used, there was a drop-off point in readers, usually around college age, say 18, 21. So in that age, they slowly stopped reading science fiction. Um, and it happened to me, exactly the same thing happened to me. I just stopped being interested in it. I was a working journalist and I, you know, I just had a lot of other things I was doing and other ambitions. But... Um, I was in a pub with with um, with Ted Carnell, the editor of, of uh, three of the British science fiction magazines then, and he was just feeling nostalgic. And he said it would be good if we could have one of those old, uh, like Robert E. Howard type stories in in the magazine. So I did him one. I, I mean, I did him one just as I might have done a you know an article on uh, on Mount Everest, as it were. Yeah. Um, and they were popular. They proved popular. So, so after that, you know, that that's how I really, that's how the whole thing started. Getting into science fiction wasn't wasn't a problem. Getting out of science fiction was slightly more of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think science fiction, um, you know, to readers of your age in the UK, do you think it was they had a different take from readers in America? To a degree, it's, it's true. It was more intense, for one thing. What, what you found, I was on the blues scene at, at one point, right? What you found that almost any, everybody in that, on that scene was also reading science fiction. And as it happened, a lot of them were reading me. So I immediately had a sort of entry into that, into that world, as it were. I mean, I didn't have to kind of do anything. I just knew the people who were who were, who were musicians at the time. Yeah. So, um, and that's, that's essentially, I mean, I, I wasn't, I had been a musician. I mean, I'd play uh, skiffle and stuff, which had, which had all done. I'd done a bit of other stuff, but, but I'd sort of given that up. I mean, I had kids and, you know, I was working. I couldn't, I couldn't do both. They both had the same appeal. Rock and roll and science fiction was sort of marginal outlaw fiction, if you like. I mean, it's romantic to call it outlaw fiction, because it was setting on W.H. Smith and the Empire and so on. But nonetheless, it was it was seen as our fiction, and the music was seen as our music. It, it was 
something we had that the adults didn't have. Yeah. There, there's nobody looking over your shoulder. There were no critics. There were no sort of serious critics. I mean, there was, there was occasionally a, a mention in the Melody Maker of Elvis Presley in a cartoon, um, yeah. and that was it. I mean, it was a jazz paper then. Or, or any new any music paper of popular music was pretty much a jazz paper before it, none of the teeny uh, music magazines had come in there really wasn't anything there was nobody sort of breathing over you and saying oh what are you doing there then what well, that's they just they just didn't have any interest in it because they didn't know anything about it so we we really in in the this was about well mid 50s um and skiffle and so on slowly that as we learned more, at least some of us, as we learned more about the music, because we couldn't source it very easily, we, we began to, to gravitate towards, towards the great blues players. I mean, that, that was fundamentally it. Yeah. Um, and in my case, also Woody Guthrie. I, I corresponded with Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and when they were under house arrest under the Un-American Activities Committee. I mean, oh, that's really? weird things were when I started. That yeah, was still you could... running. You could and write some to somebody like Woody Guthrie and actually have a correspondence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Amazing. And, and, uh, and also, you know, the, there were the anti-communist stuff was still going, McCarthyism was still, was still yeah. alive. So it, it was a strange, you know, the one place that attacked McCarthyism or, the, you know, that sort of thing was science fiction. Again, it, 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 uh, most of the most of the New York writers were, were, were commies of some kind at that point. Yeah. Trots or, or you know, one of them remained a Stalinist to the end of his days. And I can't really say any, any to his name, but he was a, he was a great editor. Um, but he loved Stalin. <laughs> anyway, um, that, so they were already of the left, and they used science fiction quite often. People like Pohl and Kornbuth and Bester. Um, who were also rather more sophisticated than the average American science fiction writer, because you know they're usually somewhere in, stuck in Ohio somewhere, and, as it were, and couldn't couldn't easily get out. Um, and uh, so I've lost my thread. I'm sorry, but something <laughs> about. Oh yeah, yeah, you were talking about Woody Guthrie and and just sort of you guys being like the outlaws and identifying with these leftist musicians, leftist yeah, that, science fiction yeah, writers. Yeah. And, that, and it, that, was, that was the sort of melange, that was the culture we were in anyway, or I was in anyway, because I was very, I mean, my idea usually was, luckily we were able to meet a lot of those blues, blues guys because um, John Brunner, who was another science fiction writer, was a great host to visiting folk musicians, really. I mean, and the blues people were first coming over as folk musicians. I mean, that was the sort of way they were sold. Big Bill Brunner and, and uh, so on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so um, it, John John being in that, uh, he, he's the guy who wrote um, Don't You Hear the H-Bombs Thunder, the anti-bomb march. Um, John was a great you know, leftist. And, and uh, anyway, and that was also associated, quite closely associated with politics, was 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 pretty much of the left. Most of the people were of the left mm -hmm. who were involved. Um, so it, we were already kind of attacking that kind of thing, McCarthyism and so on, in uh, in the science fiction magazines. Um, by by the sixties, some of us had grown tired of the tropes and the of the genre, which tended. 
Pope's, as Pope's always will, to, to have the reader read a certain way. I mean, it's just, you know, the medium is the message and all of that. And we, we were interested in that as well. I mean, the whole idea of the medium being the message, or at least part of the message. Yeah. So that's really how we started changing it. It wasn't the same as the American New Wave. We didn't call it the New Wave. Nobody did. It just... <laughs> Yeah. Just who really first called it. Yeah. So well, once yeah. they put a name on it, yeah, you don't want to yeah, put a name exactly. on your own movement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about New Worlds, because it's covered a lot in the book mm -hmm. and very important. And you took over as editor, I think, in 1964. Yeah. So you recognize science fiction was changing in the 60s, as you just said, becoming more sophisticated, more experimental, right? Well, no. I, I'm sorry, I have to. Uh, that's not so. We were very much, we were very much in opposition to almost all of the science fiction writers. It had become moribund by then. It, yeah. The, as I say, the, it really wasn't working anymore. It didn't have any function really. It wasn't attacking much. Or when it did, the magazine, the American magazines and the American book publishers censored it simply. I mean, there was no question of it. When when Bella did. Um, uh, the atrocity exhibition, which was which was uh, we first did in New Worlds, with no trouble whatsoever. Doubleday pulped the first edition un under the orders of uh, a guy who was a friend of Kennedy's, of uh, of um, been a friend of Kennedy's, and and was a friend of his wife. I can't remember her name. You know, Mrs. Kennedy and uh, Jackie Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy. That's right. And of course, Ballard makes a lot of. You know, modern figures. It was, it was part of the part of the whole framework, um, and he didn't like it. So, so the whole thing was pulped. And if you got the first edition of that in America, you got a very rare book, a few yeah. worse than hell. So, so you know, I mean, it was America seemed to us still very conservative. It was, and it was. I mean, it was very weird. America. It went from black and white to color in about a year. This is often happens in the states, as you probably noticed. Um, yeah it's very old-fashioned in some ways, and you think, where's this? Where's that? Where's that bit of gear? You know, such stuff. And then suddenly, everybody's got it. Um, you know, it's suddenly there. Um, yeah. It was the same. Video recorders were like that. People didn't, um, were very slow to pick up on video recorders in the States. Everybody in Europe had them. And, uh, and, and then suddenly, you know, so one year, nobody had a video recorder. Next year, everybody had one. You know, when you next went back to the States, living in Europe, of course. Yeah. It's a very strange thing. But anyway, at that point, it was, um, we didn't have, we weren't very interested, we weren't very focused on American science fiction. It, it, it seemed stale. The major writers were very conservative by that time. Heinlein was, I mean, on the verge of, of some form of fascism. I mean, I'm not being mean, but, and I'm not being, I don't want to attack him really, but he was very far to the right. Um, the only one who wasn't was Asimov, who, who was sort of vaguely leftish, as it were. And, yeah. and as, but a lot of them were, were, were you know, were, were extremely conservative and you know, pro the Vietnam War and all kinds of stuff. When we tried to put an ad in, when I was one of the first members of the Science Fiction Writers of America, uh, the organization, which was formed by those left-wing people, but was quickly diluted by the people who joined it. So it ceased to be, in my view, I left it some time afterwards. I'm back in now because I got, I got back in because I got um, 
a life achievement award and that gives you a that gives you a membership so, so it's back in anyway <laughs> whether you like it or not <laughs> and now it's thousands and thousands of people you know but but at that point it was about 30 people probably 40. Wow. Um, yeah. And we thought we'd put a, an ad in the, um, the science fiction magazine saying, we, the science fiction writers of America, are um, against the war in Vietnam, as it were, and feel that, you know, run it down as soon as possible, get out, you know, all that stuff. And we found that half our members, members disagreed quite violently with that. And we, we just expected everybody to agree with it, or, you know, yeah, maybe one yeah. or two people. But a whole lot of people, and some of them quite surprising, I must say, you know, came out for the war. So, so the ridiculous thing happened again. Typical in America, a compromise was reached. Ron just dropping the idea, and two ads were put in: one supporting the war, and one against the war. <laughs> <laughs> that was a waste of paper. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> so it seems like you were taking inspiration from sort of a. The more fringe elements of the science fiction in America, yeah, and we, also, we, yeah, we were really, Ballard and I, we were close friends. There were only three people at that point who were really wanting it to change. It was me, Ballard, and a guy called Barry Bailey, who, who's very, very, very not very well known, but extremely uh, influential on the cyberpunk movement. Yeah, um, and, and a very, very good writer, but very. Um, well, no, he's not a good writer, actually. Very good ideas, but actually not a very good writer. So his stuff, his, his stuff, his stuff's a bit leaden sometimes, but his yeah. ideas are brilliant. And, and that's what, you know, that's what people read him for. That's why I was, and he was a great guy. We were partners. We were actually writing partners for, as journalists for quite a long time. Anyway, um, so Ballard, Bailey and I, we, we were all working in publishing of one sort or another. Um, Jimmy was working for chemistry and industry, and I was freelance and Barry was freelance, mostly doing features, um, just general features, not on anything in particular. Although I became, oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and there we were, that, and, and the rest, everything else seemed not that good. Jimmy had lost his, lost his, had lost his respect for Bradbury. Bradbury, as you brought him into the into science fiction, yeah. he then read an article in Life magazine about Bradbury, his hero, and discovered that Bradbury had loads of nerdy little figures, you know, all the stuff that nerds have. I have them. Um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and his respect for Bradbury just vanished. Over <laughs> couldn't take it. <laughs> our, our interest was, was, was uh, and this isn't being snotty, it's just our enthusiasms. I mean, we were only young. I mean, these were enthusiasms. Were, were, were the French absurdists, um, the existentialists, mine in particular was Furbank, another, another absurdist. It goes back to Peacock in the, in the 19th century. It was an absurdist. It's largely the influences for absurdism of some sort or other. Even Mervyn Peake, who did a lot of absurd verse and, and writing yeah um we we didn't we got we thought that what was happening was that the rationalizations that pe pe people were giving were getting in the way of the ideas were getting in the way of the actual ins imaginative inspiration so a lot of there was a lot of you know how does this thing work 
exposition within science fiction stories. And we wanted to dump all that. We just wanted to get rid of it. It was a waste of time. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care how a spaceship got you to Jupiter or, you know, or whether you could breathe there or not when you got there. I, I, I mean, I just wasn't interested. And we, we had a, you know, we had a vague sort of, we, we were kind of saying, you know, cheering on the guys who were going up on the moon and stuff like that, but we weren't really interested. And I certainly wasn't. I mean, I had no, no interest in space whatsoever. It was, a, it was just a setting. I, I, I didn't know, I still don't know where Arcturus 5 is. I mean, I've no idea where, where, where these, these places are. Um, so, so, but science fiction had two things. It was popular. Well, more than two things. It was popular. It had an intellectual base. It, it appealed to people's minds quite as much as it appealed to their um, visual imagination. So you had, you, had, you had all the things you really needed, if you like, in a, in a literary movement. The substance of it was there. The pop artists, who we soon became allied to, were doing the same thing. Uh, the first pop art, uh, you know, as you know, the pop art movement started in England with, with Palazzi and Hamilton and so on. And, and they, their first exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery was called This Is Tomorrow. And it was a, an outside, I, I, I happened to be working in the area and I actually saw the exhibition. I, mean, I knew nothing about it as a kid, you know, but there it was, the way they did. And they had a big robot outside, which of course attracted me as a kid, Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet. And yeah. it could be cut out. And inside were, the, were people like Palazzi and Hamilton, all of them deeply interested in science fiction, but for the imagery, you know, they weren't, again, they weren't really interested how, you know, or where it was going on. They were just it was the, the images that were important. Yeah. And, and that was true too of, you know, a lot of the French writers I've mentioned, um, uh, well, I didn't mention, but Jarry and uh, Vian and people like that. Um, and the, the movies that we were watching, which were New Wave, actually New, New Vauvard movies, you know, all had that slightly fantastic turn to them, that turn of imagination. And, and we could see just you know, a whole arsenal of stuff there that wasn't being used by anybody, really. I mean, not, not, not in the general culture. Yeah. It was, as it were, marginalised. I'm not saying we, we were sort of too posh and looked down on it in any way we're enthusiasts but we could see what we could do with it we didn't want to be we didn't want to be restricted by the the commercial aspects of science fiction which had become very very important by that time i mean when when wells wrote um the time machine but for the fortnightly it was in fortnight anyway I've, I've actually got it the magazine anyway when he wrote it for the father magazine, I mean, he, he wasn't writing for a science fiction magazine, he was writing for a general general magazine. As, as a, and that's the context I wanted to see the stuff in. I wanted to see, I wanted to see that happen. And what inspired me, or rather, a sort of cheered us on in a way, was the Beatles' success. It was the Beatles that, 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 were, that drove almost everything at that point. I yeah. mean, they were, they were the center and the, the, the vitality, as it were, of ideas was being given authority by the fact that they were making a lot of money. As not, not authority, you know, I mean, they had their own authority. But as far as the, the press was concerned, I suppose, that sort yeah. of impressed them, you know, which meant 
that it filtered through to a lot of other arts, including, of course, music. It meant that you could you could do more because they didn't know anymore what sold. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, they <laughs> were doing it. Or even Where's Elvis Presley? This was this was music music was being made, you know, almost as you listened, they were they were progressing sort of almost hourly. I mean, it was astonishing how yeah. uh, how how they, how they developed a genuine musical sensibility. Of, uh, I mean, once they had George Martin's um, as a sort of mechanic, as it were, who could who could put what they wanted to do into into reality. Yeah. Um, and he was an important part of that, of course. Once they had that, they, they, uh, I mean, there seemed to be no stopping them. I mean, they did stop. They went back and re looked again at their origins. You know, they did that quite a bit. One does that, I think, when working. I do that with, when I'm working. I look at the origins, you know, and I want to see what was really doing it for me. I don't want any of the crap. I don't want a load of strings, even though Buddy Holly did use them. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and all of that. So without the Beatles, we wouldn't have had the authority to do what we did, I suspect. Many of us wouldn't have had that authority yeah. unless we'd gone into fine arts like the pop artists. And we didn't want to go into the fine arts. We wanted to sell on the newsstands because that's where science fiction sold. We, didn't, we wanted to get directly to real people rather than go through the critics, which is the normal way of becoming, as it were, popular. Right, and yeah, the, the Beatles really showed that because they were, complete, they were completely self-contained. They wrote the songs, played all the instruments. They didn't need professional experts like yeah. in the past, producers, songwriters. They did it all, and they were just yeah. ordinary working class Absolutely. people, not even from London. They're completely outside the mainstream. Absolutely, and and and, and I tell you, Apple was horrible um, when when they started giving money away. It was just a nightmare, <laughs> and and. I, I just put this on my Facebook page. I mean, it's just a thing I remembered. I um, I was at Apple, and Derek Derek Taylor had said he, he wanted to give New Wells some money, right? Because they were giving away money. <laughs> so I went there with Bill Harry, who was my friend, who did uh, um, another connection. Actually, he'd been in Liverpool. He was he was at Liverpool School of Art. He'd been my art editor, as it were, on fanzines that I did. So we we went back to you know school oh, age, yeah. as it were. Um, so Bill knew the knew the Beatles and knew all the guys and you know, it was and had become a publicist I think by this time he was that you know that's so I was I was getting to meet these people partly through that I mean through Bill um, who's still alive I mean he's retired but he's still alive out <laughs> still still working and rolling and um, so so I, 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 as we came through Apple you you went up a I'd only been open about three weeks. You went up an apple green uh, staircase, you know, the carpet, the stair carpet was apple green. It was worn to, to a nub. I mean, it was just <laughs> worn. The number of feet that have been up that, that's, it was just astonishing. You then Free money, the, yeah. <laughs> you then went into the first sort of chamber, a, a large sort of uh, Georgian, you know, it was a house, you know, as you know, big, big room. And it was filled with, yeah, it is as it were. It's just absolutely just filled with people waiting to see Derek, who was the first step towards getting Apple money. So you went through that. You went then went through a second room, 
I mean, it's like a court of, you know, I mean, it, it, it operated. It's, it's how it functioned. It, you know, no other way of it functioning. And those, these were the guys who got through to the second room and they were all there, you know, ready to make a recording um, to, to, to warn people about the guys from Mars or whatever it was they were doing. And they were some extremely strong. The only person I think who came out of that was James Taylor. He, he, he recorded that all. But anyway, um, and, and after, you know, and, and I'm just talking, and there's there'd been something about the Beatles to go bankrupt. It was just a headline, you know, they couldn't go bankrupt. It was almost impossible. I mean, the money was just, it, it just kept coming in. And um, George Harrison was there, and, and, and I, I didn't know George Harrison. And, and Derek says, um, oh, George, this is, this is Mike Morcock. He doesn't, because oh, I'd said to Derek, sorry, I don't want any money from you. I just don't. I said, buy some advertising, you know, buy something, but I really don't want any money from you. I can't stand it. These, these guys, you know, whose talent that got them, you know, pure talent that got them there, and we're giving this money away because I know how that feels. You feel guilty. You don't want to be separated from, from, from your own people. You know, you're trying to get, just get rid of it. And it's a strange thing. It's happened to me several times in my, in my up and down career. I, I just, you just can't help it. You don't want it because it puts such a barrier between you and, and, the, and what you came out of. And, and you need what you came out of. So um, anyway, um, so Derek says, um, you know, uh, hi, yeah, hi, George. Uh, George was George was full of his new little instamatic. He he got rid of all his thousands of likers and all the rest of it, and he got himself in his thing. Said it's amazing. You don't have to do anything. And <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Derek says, um, "This is Mike Walker. He doesn't want any money from us." And, I, and as I said on Facebook, I've never had my hand more warmly shaken. <laughs> Like he was, oh, thank you. <laughs> I didn't want anything from them. I mean, they were giving me far more, <laughs> you know, than I, than I, already than, I, than, than, than I could possibly, you know, ever, ever want. So, yeah, so, I was, you know, as a big Beatles fan, that, that, that's really what got me also back into, um, I suppose, popular music, rock and roll, you know, and so on because I started listening to it again and it became interesting. It wasn't just the Beatles. There were a few. I mean, I'm not a great rock and roll fan, but um, The Who were doing interesting stuff musically. The Kinks were doing stuff. In, you know, I mean, there were a lot of bands, big bands, that were actually very experimental or fairly experimental in, musically and doing interesting stuff. Yeah. Generally, I, I wasn't, you know, until Hawkwind came along, I wasn't much involved with, with, with music. I just slowly slid out of, you know, performing because it didn't pay anything anyway, and it was very uncomfortable because the, you know, back of a, of a Ford Transit all the way to Doncaster isn't necessarily the best way you want to spend your time. <laughs> yeah. well, well, but tell me a little bit about your band was called the Deep Fix even yeah. as early as '64 or so, right? Yes. W were you sort of part of that whole British R&B scene? You know, you. In, in the Cornelius Chronicles, you mentioned like Zoot Money, the Downliner sect, yeah. you named yeah. these very cool yeah. bands from yeah. back then. Were you a part of that sort of sphere of musicians? Um, I suppose I was. I mean, I, I wasn't performing at all, but I was, I, was, I, I was in the Flamingo, you know, virtually every night for a long time. 
certain nights not because they're sort of pop nights which <laughs> anyway the flamingo was really uh when i say oh it's about three of us um uh you know center it's where all the best r&b bands played sooner or later they were always going to have a london london gig or, or well of course they played at the railway as well in west hampstead yeah. but that was too far for me <laughs> it was too far out i mean it was ridiculous um being you know being i remember jimmy ballard when, when i moved moved to fulham we, we came from yorkshire to fulham i could i didn't i didn't want to live in fulham but we couldn't afford anywhere else at the time and um jimmy ballard said oh Tragic back, Mike. Um, you 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 must come down to the suburbs and you know and have a have you know have a drink. And I said, Jimmy, I'm living in the suburbs. You're living in the country. It was just it was horrifying to me. I wasn't you know I was used to being able to walk quarter an hour and get home from from a gig as it were. Yeah, it, it did bring me close to Hampstead. So, so uh, not Hampstead, um, Hammersmith. So I did do more gigs in Hammersmith. I was very lazy. I didn't I didn't like the discomfort and I didn't like the tensions of band life, you know, which come about just they do. Um, but I, you know, they were distracting and I didn't like them much. Uh, so I, so I, I really didn't do an awful lot of, of gigging. Um, I didn't, I, I, I love, love being on stage. I love entertaining. I mean, I'll, I'll do that for hours. Um, you can't keep me off the stage, but I, I, I don't like, cause it were, I like doing it for, I've never earned a penny from Hawkwind, put it that way. Um, I never got paid for a gig. I never wanted to get paid for a gig. I didn't even get my um, session fee for something I did. I mean, I've never, I, don't, I doubt about that, you know. No, I can't say I've ever had any money out of Hawkwind. Most people haven't, but that's, an, that's another story. Um, uh, so I do it, I mean, entirely for the pleasure of it. And that audience, to me, is my people. I mean, I, I know that, you know, I know a lot of posh people. I mean, I know a lot of people who can't understand why I do this. A lot of people who just wish I wouldn't. People who think, you know, if only I didn't do that, I'd be doing, you know, I'd be so much more successful or better known, you know, more on the, you know, and all that. I don't want to. I mean, it's as simple as that. I'm perfectly happy doing what I do. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind sometimes a bit more dosh, you know, I mean, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm rich by almost any standards locally here. Yeah. I mean, when you see how people, most people, it's, there's a lot of poor people living in, uh, well, are essentially, well, you know, um, in uh, motorhomes and stuff like that. And you can't live in Texas and, and not, self-tied because they don't tax there's no there's no income tax in texas because if you didn't you you just couldn't live here i mean as a as a as a, as a person of conscience it wouldn't be possible to to do um you you know it's it, people come here to evade taxes we didn't come here for that reason we came here largely because there were people in austin uh, musicians and writers who were very lively at the time, seemed very, well, very lively at the time. Yeah. Um, some of them are dead now. I mean, Mac, Mac McLaren, for instance, a great guy, um, you know, from the faces, right. came here. Um, and quite a few other people, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of English people came to Austin for reasons, not just because, you know, they were going to be 
famous in a small town, which a lot of, as you probably know, English people do do. It's a, it's a tendency. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I didn't want any of that. And, and performing with Hawkwind was the best way I had of getting, as it were, back in touch with, with readers. Because a lot of those readers, a lot of the Hawkwind fans are like anybody else. They're not particularly interested in anything except the music. They don't want to know anything else. They don't read anything. You know, they're, not, they're not readers. They're music people. That's what they like. That's their enthusiasm. And uh, it keeps you sort of real, too, you know, if you know what I mean, because not everybody yeah. loves you. Um, and they do when you're on stage with Hawkwind. I mean, there's no question of that. Um, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, um, it, 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 it's just nat natural. I mean, it was strange how I know I'm rambling. I'm not. I'm not sort of following your narrative. Very no, that's well, fine. Sorry. That's fine. It's all fascinating. Um, when when uh, when punk came in in the let's say late seventies or mid to late seventies, um, Hawkwind and Lemmy and Motorhead at that time by that time were the only bands that. Um, John, what's John's name? John Peel. Lime. Um, John Peel. No, not John Peel. Yeah. No, um, uh, this is a uh, Sex Pistols guy. Oh, John Lydon. John Lydon, yeah. Um, who I didn't know actually, but I, I knew I knew. Um, what's his name? <laughs> Guitarist. Oh Christ! I can. I'm <laughs> terrible at names. I Steve Jones. Um, no, it's the other one. The one who who, who left. Um, who they all? <laughs> well, no, but John started. Glenn, uh, Glenn Matlock. Glenn, yeah. Glenn was yeah. a really nice guy, sweet guy. I, I, I don't know if you know him, but he is a very nice guy. So anyway, Hawkwind and, and, and Motorhead people were the only people the punks respected. You could go anywhere to a punk gig, and, you know, and if they knew who you were. Um, and by that time, I was 40 by, say, 1980, when, when sort of stuff was, I suppose, at its height. Um, yeah, I was in my late thirties, and 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 I remember when Linda and I went to a um, a gig. I can't remember. I think it was at the Music Machine in Camden. I can't even remember the gig. But anyway, oh, I know because a friend of mine was managing the adverts. I don't know if you remember the adverts. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And and and, uh, and I like the adverts. I, I, Gabe Gabe was a sweet sweet kid. I, I, they were all very sweet, actually, very nice. And uh, so we were going to the adverts gig. Once we got there, all these punks, you know, guys with huge stuff and, you know, or, or shaven heads or whatever, you know, the punk stuff, are coming up to us and saying, can we get you anything? Um, would you like a chair? And, <laughs> and so on. I mean, we, we, were, we were sort of, we were there, we were respected, but we were seen as very old. <laughs> and it, was, it was very nice, really. You know, it was a nice transition because there was no difference between punk, you know, hippies and punks. I mean, it's just a different hairstyle, really. You know, I mean, yeah. Um, the, 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 the people who had the idealism and kept the idealism, they did. Everybody else did whatever you know, normally happens. You know, some of them became totally commercialized and some of them didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of them came out of that same sort of scene as, um, like you say, Hawkwind, the Pink Fairies, the Deviants, Ed, Ed yeah. Broughton. It was kind of, that was sort of street music from yes, the sports yeah. of London and what have you. So absolutely, yeah. it really was no different. No, no, it wasn't. Um, and I mean, 
yeah, and, and th those the, the people you mentioned, of course, the people that I knew, I wasn't really moving in the pop world. I mean, except wherever it kind of impinged on something else I was doing. Um, when I say pop, I mean, I mean Iggy Pop, actually. When I think of it, um, I, I had to I had to carry Iggy, Iggy once home from from. Uh, he got we were staying at the same hotel, and um, he gets in. Uh, drunk, I mean, he's just out of it. You know how nice he is. I mean, he's, he's really nice guy. And and uh, he um, he says, uh, you know, he he thinks he knows me, and he doesn't really. I mean, we we passed in the night, as it were. And he starts talking, and then then he slowly sinks to the floor of the elevator. I mean, he just passes out. <laughs> so I pick him up because of, you know he's not that big, and uh, and take him to the bar. Actually, is where we were both going, and I I just. Uh, Propped him up and left him there. You can't drink it. <laughs> but, but but I didn't really. I, I mean, I didn't. I, I knew a lot of famous people before they were famous, but I didn't really get into the kind of big time music scene at all. I wasn't. I wasn't that interested in it. Yeah, you, know, you don't seem to meet somebody who'd be impressed with celebrity. That's no, not... I, I suppose that's it. I mean, Bill, for instance, as a publicist, one one time. He uh, he got the Pink Floyd and he got me together, and here we are. Um, to be honest, I didn't at that time much like Pink Floyd's the little Pink Floyd I'd heard, but I, I didn't mind. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> perfectly all right, folks. You know, and uh, and for two days we were taken around every bloody electronic music studio. It seemed to me on Earth it was actually only in the London region, but it, it was. And we just sat there while they played electronic music at us. We went sort of, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And we still don't know why we're all there. We went for two days doing that, and then vaguely we just sort of faded away. I mean, we didn't do it at all. I, I, I know that Sid Barrett had, Sid Barrett had, had uh, read a book of mine. I mean, I hadn't got that many books out then, or not as many as now. Um, Called the Fire Clown. I think it was the Fire Clown. It may have been another, which which he did, which set the controls for the Heart of the Sun is supposed to be um, inspired by. Right. But, but I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that because again, science fiction and rock and roll in England were just pretty much like that. They were intersect, almost yeah. interchangeable. The strange thing was that all of the musicians were friendly and pleasant to the science fiction writers. The science fiction writers were so fucking straight that they were always uncomfortable. I mean, it was just amazing. Brian Aldiss, who is one of my best friends, and I, I, I love dearly, I mean, he's a nice guy, um, did, a, did a very good book called Barefoot in the Head, which was one of the books mentioned in the, in, in, in the book, yeah. which was um, experimental in, in language and, and had a lot to do with acid and so on, but he didn't really know anything about it. You know, it was research from Brian. I mean, he was, a, you know, like most of them, they were drinkers. You know, they weren't druggers, and they looked down on druggers because you know they got drugged a different way. And uh, I remember Brian said, you know, "Could you introduce me to you know a rock and roll band because I'd like them to you know to look at my lyrics and see if they could turn them into songs." So I said, sure. And I mean, genuinely, I was, you know, all right, if that's what you want to do. The band I 
I introduced them to, at least not all of them, were the Pink Fairies. <laughs> but, I mean, these are the people I knew. I didn't know the Beatles. You know, I didn't know these people. These weren't socialised with any of these people. These are the people I socialised with. <laughs> and so we're all sitting on a mattress, every one of us except Brian, stoned out of our brains, while the girl that he has been trying to pick up all evening is trying to pick me up, which I wasn't, you know, I was... I had kids, I was married, and they were around the corner too, so I wasn't exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, it was just, and, and, and afterwards, he'd lost his wallet. He went mad. He, he accused my friends of being, you know, thieves and, 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 and rogues of the. It was astonishing. He'd lost <laughs> his wallet. Dave so Brock brought it round the next day. He said, Blackie, um, you know, Paul Rudolph uh, was one of the people. Um, um, Black, Blackie found this, and, you know, and he, uh, he thought, he knew Brian Aldis was a mate of ours, and, and here it is. And, of course, all the money was gone. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but, but all his credit cards and everything were there, you know, and I said it yeah. he, In the meantime, he'd accused me of all kinds of things. I mean, the reaction these friends of mine were having to these other friends of mine was really very, very strange. I mean, I couldn't see it. They were all, I mean, they, you know, they were just welcoming, friendly to, 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 to the SF people. The SF people really, and my generation was better. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not saying, you know, but, but I was younger than pretty much anybody else of yeah. my you know, level of fame or whatever it was. I mean, I was just the younger of that generation. But, but they all saw me as being, you know, as really going downhill, really not. Not helping myself with all this hippie nonsense. <laughs> I guess now would be an opportune time to talk about Mick Farron, mm -hmm. who, I, who I wrote a chapter about in the book. And, and, and yeah, he, obviously, thank you. Obviously, you, you were moving in the same circles as him. Yeah. Was he like a kindred spirit? Were you rivals? Not at friends? first. Not at first. Um, at first, Mick was very wary of me because he couldn't work out. You know, I was not. I was. You know, he hadn't written anything at that point. And I, of course, was the hippie's favorite writer at that point. Yeah. So here I am. I don't think of myself, you know, I just don't. It's very hard for me to think of myself as being, you know, famous um, or anything like that. So yeah. I, I was all right with it, but, but Mick was very kind of, what's he up to? What's he doing here? What's he after? You know, and it wasn't until I suppose it was the, Second Oz trial, the the, uh, the the trial of the people demonstrating outside for us, which um, convinced him that I was I was on the right side because I I was involved in that and I and I made sure people got to court and you know I was the only I was the only one actually with a, with a normal life of any sort I suppose but I you know I I, I yeah. could organise a taxi and I could you know wake people up and get them you know there before they were again you know, summoned or whatever it was. I mean, this is just what was happening. Um, and witnessed some extremely prejudiced stuff. I mean, just astonishing. It was the City of London magistrates and they're notoriously terrible, um, as are the cops there. So it wasn't a fair trial by any means, but but nonetheless, we, we did our best to, you know, to, to make it work. And, we, uh, and I think I've, I've got one person sort of away from any serious charge. Um, 
the lawyers who started off as being very cynical about, about us, when they looked at the evidence, which luckily we had a lot of photographers around at that time. I mean, you know, hippie photographers, they were everywhere. Everybody wanted to be in the underground papers. And so we had photographs. We could prove that the police were, you know, were lying. It didn't stop the magistrates, by the way. They, they just dismissed the evidence. <laughs> but nonetheless, it, that's what, I think that's what probably what convinced Mick that I, was, I wasn't um, just, a, just a, um, some kind of slummer um, come to see what the uh, hippies were like. I mean, I looked like them. I looked more like them than they did. I mean, I always had, as it were, to a degree. Although I went yeah. from mod to that. I, mean, I didn't think of myself as a mod. As I said to my kids who described me as a mod, I said, oh, what? I didn't say I was a mod. We just all dressed like that at that time. You know, we had little thin black ties and you know, white shirts. And that's how we dressed. I mean, it was sort of, you know, how we did it. <laughs> and... Uh, well, apparently I was a mod, so now I can say I was a mod. I didn't have a Vespa. Um, anyway, uh, ask, me, ask me a question. I'm rambling. I'm very sorry. Well, yeah, so that, uh, at that point, Mick realised that you were oh, yeah, Mick. one, one uh, yeah, of them. Or whatever. I was okay, yeah. And after that, we got on fine. It was really after IT, so it must have, there must have been some IT stuff going on there too, um, yeah. international times. Because I did a strip. I did a strip right. Yeah, I think before I really knew Mick, I mean, I knew him to nod to, as it were, because obviously he was editing International Times and I was contributing. Um, but uh, we did a Jerry Cornelius strip for International Times. And, uh, and after that, I think probably it's just, it wasn't that we were avoiding each other. It's just we didn't come into each other's spheres at times. And then we did. And then we were fine. We were just mates, you know, after that. I liked him a lot. I was extremely, extremely, I had a lot of respect for him, a lot of respect for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like you, it must have been you to a degree that opened doors for him, even if you didn't literally help him with his career, you must have looked at you and said, yeah, yeah. Uh, a guy like me could write science yes. fiction, you know? And, well, could do something interesting too, you know. Um, he was the only other person, I, I think, of any, you know, of any substance, I'm not being mean, but who produced more than one book, so let's say, um, who knew the rock and roll world as well as he knew the science fiction world. Yeah. Um, well, he knew the rock and, world rock and roll world better than he knew the science fiction world, really. Um, but the real rock and roll world, as we used to think of it anyway, in the, <laughs> in the people's bands, I mean, we were just, you know, that's what we were. And... Uh, he then moved to Los Angeles, so I, and not at the same time as I moved to Los Angeles. So, so I didn't see him for, for quite a long time. I, we, we correspond a bit. Then he moved back to Brighton. I think, didn't he go from LA to Brighton? I don't remember his yeah. exact route, but, um, yeah. and then he was in Brighton. And again, I didn't see him much because by that time, I think I was in Yorkshire. And, you know, it's just, just you know, we just didn't cross paths much. But we were very friendly. I mean, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd have done anything for him. He was a, he was a solid bloke, really. Yeah, he was. He was great. Um, can we talk now a little bit about uh, Jerry Cornelius? Yeah. Um, you you mentioned uh, being a mod, and and you know the original Jerry Cornelius character. You know, as in the, the you know the first book, he was really part Ace Face mod and sort of a pod almost James Bond-like secret agent. I mean, 
he was kind of an embodiment of that era, really. Is well, that what yeah, you had in mind? To, yeah, well, you know, as with science fiction, I was trying to find popular imagery, stuff that was, you know, my imagery, as it were, that would work, my experience that would work. Um, I wrote the first one in, in uh, um, 10 days in January 1965. Um, it, I learned to work fast because I had children very young. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Because I read you did like 15,000 words a day sometimes. Yeah. Just, well, as a writer, I was like, how? How is that even possible? It's possible because I can do over 200 words a minute. Um, I went to Pittman's College. I learned nothing at Pittman's College except how to type. And, <laughs> and I am an ace typist. When I, when I, when I was young, I, I used to hire out as a, as a typist, you know, a temporary typist at, at offices. When I, you know, if I was broke, I'd get, you could go to an agency and they'd give you a job pretty much immediately. Every one of them would ask me to stay on. Yeah, please stay on. Yeah, please stay on. Because I could spell and I could do 200 words. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of... That is incredible. Know, I, I was best, I'm great for them, but not so much for me. So I never really did take up any offer. But, it, but that, that was it. It's just fast typing. I mean, I, I, fast, accurate typing. Um, I can still hear the music of, of how we used to learn how to type by music. It, it used to go, da, 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 da. <laughs> you should return the courage. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I mean, typing fast is one thing, but it's, you know, your imagination and your writing moving that fast is a whole other issue. Well, yeah, well, it's what, it, what I used to call it was, sorry, I, I try, you know, you can't teach this, unfortunately. You can teach how to structure so you can write quickly, you know, so that structure helps you, you know, helps you write fast because you know what you've got to say and you're not pausing to think, as it were. Um, I've completely forgotten what I was saying. Well, just, yeah, well, we I was were, just we, thinking about typewriters. <laughs> Sorry. I, <laughs> we were, you were saying you, you, you wrote the first uh, Cornelius book uh, very quickly. Well, right. yeah, yeah. well actually, a part of, I wrote part of that book with, with my daughter Sophie on one knee. This is the truth. My daughter Kate on another. With, with bottles propped. I don't know how I did it. We, we were living in a flat, a two-room flat with a bath in the kitchen. And you had to lift this thing. I, I was working on the top of the bar with these, with these two kids. And, and, and that's how I wrote it. I mean, it was very, I, I don't believe it now. Um, and my first wife says it's a fantasy. So maybe it's not true, but I remember it very clearly doing it because it was easy for me to stay up late. So I could look after the kids at night. She didn't have to get up because I could work and, and you know, when the kids needed feeding, I could do that. She didn't have yeah. to wake up. And uh, so maybe she just didn't see it. But, but, I, but I, I know I did it. And, and I, I loved it. I loved my, I loved my kids. I mean, I, I, a lot of my books, I actually remember, I don't remember anything about the books. I, can never remember anything about people ask me questions about the books. I can't do it. Um, I'm looking for a Kleenex, and Linda appears to have stolen them. Linda, you stole my Kleenex. Oh well. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What's this? There it goes. I'll blow my nose. Um, 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, what were we talking about? Um, well, yeah, oh, Jerry yeah. Cornelius. Jerry Cornelius. And I actually saw Jerry Cornelius. He's based on a real person. There's a little cafe at the top of where Portobello Road and Kensington Park Road divide. Um, there's just a little kind of V there of, of shops and restaurants. And this was right at the V of the, of the thing. And you could see Notting Hill directly through the window. You could see Notting Hill tube station. Behind that was a greengrocer's. I'll get to this in a minute, maybe. And behind that was a greengrocer's. And as I was eating my um, whatever it was, um, chicken chasseur was very good there. Um, um, it's a, just a nice little cafe, Italian cafe. Um, I see this guy walking towards me, and I've been thinking about how to make deal with the mythology of London, basically. How everything around me actually has a mythic aspect, and I wanted to look at it you know, and see how I could work it. And this guy is coming, coming towards me through, you know, through the glass, as it were. He's got a velvet, black velvet jacket on. His, I can't remember his trousers, they're probably just ordinary trousers and stuff. He's got hair as long as yours, um, which was unusual by that time. And um, very few people had hair that long then. I mean, we all had long hair, but it wasn't that long. Yeah. And it's it lovely sort of chestnut color. <laughs> anyway, um, and he was, you know, he was pretty, pretty impressive. Just the image of him, you know, you just a cool dude. You didn't, you know, he probably wasn't if you talked to him, but, but he looked great. <laughs> and that was, and behind him was the greengrocer's sign, which said Cornelius of London. Wow. And, and that bloke, uh, will never know and is, could well be dead by now. And uh, the greengrocer, which is no longer there either, um, were the two, two sort of images I needed, or name wow. an image, that I needed for, for, for it. And I pretty much went home and wrote it. Amazing. Um, it, 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 yeah, I, I, I was also, I was, I was using um, spy James Bond type stuff. But I was using science fiction stuff as well. And, yeah. and, and, and I was really parodying around the same time. In fact, I wrote two parodies of James Bond books, two comic spy thrillers where the hero is, thinks he's James Bond, but is basically a wanker, which I think James Bond is too, but that's <laughs> my opinion. <laughs> so, 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 so I was, I was kind of interested. These are all the kind of, you know, these are the powerful images coming in. Pictures of, of Sean Connery with, you know, with his autumn, his Beretta or whatever, you know, all yeah. that. And, I, and, I, and also the Black Panther movement. I, I, I think they were, may have been a little bit later. It went in the second, but I'm not quite sure. But they were glamorous. I mean, those are, those guys. Everybody wanted to be one of those guys. Yeah. I mean, you just. You, you know, if, if you could, you would have blacked up, put on a berry, and you got yourself a... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those, those leather jackets are really beautiful, oh, right? I mean, they, they, were, they were the tops and cool. I mean, you could yeah, get... Cool there's the shades and yeah, everything, yeah. Shades, the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's such a tragedy what happened. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. But I mean, yeah. they're almost too good. Their image is almost too good for them. It brought them down. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, it, that 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 was that, it, it was 
it was that sort of thing that I wanted to get into. Into I want, what I said I wanted to do is I wanted to write, use hot subject matter, but written in a cool way. I wanted some way of distancing, but the, 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 it was like today's news. Um, like I've just finished a COVID story, for instance. I'm not, um, or at least it refers to COVID. It's a Jerry Cornelius story, but it doesn't actually have anything about COVID in it. But it's up to the reader to make whatever links they want to make, um, right. which is what I do. Um, I suppose I'm an egalitarian writer. Uh, I, I, or, or you could say I make the reader do half the work, so really they should only be paying me half the money. But, but, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't like to tell them that. They start patch on and then it's all, all over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the readers appreciate that. You know, they don't want you to give... They, want, they appreciate you allowing them to use their imaginations yeah, too yeah. i mean that's Absolutely. part of it it's is, showing a respect for their intellect i think exactly exactly because you, you see you know if, if they want to read that stuff at the beginning they're attracted to it they've got they've got a brain i mean they're actually thinking doesn't matter what what else you know they're thinking people they can reject what you've got to say or they can accept it or you know, do whatever they like with it but you're dealing with you know with a nice nice smart group yes yeah, so the time police are here. Ah, well. <laughs> well I'm sorry, I, we haven't covered any anything that you wanted well, to cover. I should, well, have, I, I should have told him that he had to interrupt you if he wanted a word in it. <laughs> no, this was this was perfect, and I think we hit a lot of the key points. The structure actually stayed just about right. Okay. Um, and I wanted to end with asking how your methodology had changed, and and you sort of yeah. went there and kind of told me that it, it's very much the same in a lot of ways. In some ways, but I have changed. I had to loosen up because the thing is, once you once you've worked out a structure, you start using it too often. It becomes easy. It means that you're not you know you're not using it right. It's become moribund in your own hands. So you have a template, to, yeah, absolutely. So you just have to. Do something. Else. Say goodbye, Michael. So I've loosened up a lot. I'm much looser now. Say goodbye, or, Michael. Say goodbye, Michael. <laughs> All right, well, Michael, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, I, um, I, I enjoyed it too. I'd like to have chatted longer. Um, you know, you look like an interesting bloke. And, and, uh, you've obviously got a history. I'd like to, anyway. You know, we'll well, hopefully we can talk again. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good. Okay, Thanks very much you. for your time. And, and I, while I'm on camera, I do have to. I do really want to thank not only you but also PM Press and City Lights Books for hosting this event. And uh, thank you to everybody who is watching. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that was so much fun. What a way to kind of end the first day. Um, much love to Mike Stack's uh, consummate pro. Uh, such a great, great job interviewing. And, and thanks to Linda for helping facilitate. And of course, much respect to Mr. Moorcock. So many great stories. Just love it. So thank you all for sticking it through. I see just a lot of you have been here all day. It's fantastic. Um, very heartening. So um, this whole weekend has been made possible from the support of the City Lights Foundation, keeping the legacy of Lawrence Ferlinghetti alive into the future. So hope you'll join us. Be safe. Be well. See you all soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.